0: Mark chapter 14, I will be reading from verses 22 through 31. The sermon will be primarily on verses 26 through 21. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. God is a covenant making and covenant keeping God. This says a lot about the nature and character of Jesus Christ because this is what we see in this text before us this morning. God, through Jesus Christ, made a covenant with his disciples and he has promised to keep his covenant. And one of the signs that he chose to institute which seals to us the promises of the covenant is the Lord's Supper. But why a covenant? Our confession of faith says it best when it says the distance between God and the creature is so great. They can never have any fruition of God as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has pleased to express by way of covenant. So the reason why God makes a covenant with us is for our sake. The distance between us is so vast and great that he had to come down to us. He had to condescend to us and make a covenant. So that he, so that God would be our portion forever. And this covenant is based on his word and God cannot break his word. Now this will help us to understand what was going on in the upper room during the Lord's Supper. It says this, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant. In Luke's account, it says, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. You're probably wondering, I heard you mention it a few times, but what is a covenant? In the dictionary, a covenant is defined as an agreement or contract, usually between two parties. And there are obligations and conditions for both parties that involve swearing oaths and vows, promising to fulfill those conditions. And this agreement acts as a treaty and has a promise of peace and friendship between the two parties as long as both keep their ends of the bargain. There are blessings if you keep the covenant, and curses if you don't keep the conditions of the covenant. This definition is all good, except that I believe the covenants made by God are not made between two mutual parties. Man didn't make a covenant with God, God condescended, came down to man. And made a covenant with man. It is one sided. I believe the best definition for those covenants made by God in the Bible is that they are divinely sanctioned commitments. Divinely sanctioned commitments. These are commitments imposed by God. And the covenants made by God that we find in the Bible are instruments of God's kingdom. A covenant is the way God establishes his kingdom or his kingship. This means there is an end or goal to the covenant, and that is to establish his kingdom. So in a covenant, there is something to look forward to. It doesn't just keep going on and on. There is an end to the agreement. It is not limited to this world. It goes beyond this world. Now let us think back to the Garden of Eden. There was a covenant made with Adam. And this covenant had conditions for Adam. And the condition was perfect, personal, and perpetual. That means never-ending obedience. It was do this and live. And if you don't do this, if you eat of that tree, you will die. So the promise of blessing was life, life everlasting in fellowship with God. But also, if you read down to Genesis 3 verse 22, he would have had access to the tree of life if he obeyed. So what he would have gained would have been kingdom life. That means it wasn't a promise of never-ending created life of work and toil, but eventually it would lead to a life of rest in the heavenly places with God eternally, enjoying the fruits of his labors. There was an end to reach. There was an eternal Sabbath rest that Adam would have obtained. And so the promise of curse was that if he disobeyed, he would die physically as well as spiritually. This is why in theology and in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's called a covenant of works. Because the condition was that Adam had to obey perfectly. He had a period of probation. And it wasn't a covenant of grace. Because grace and faith, when we're speaking of salvation, is reserved for sinners. Adam wasn't a sinner yet. He had nothing to be saved from. So then when Adam falls into sin, God makes another covenant with his people. A covenant of grace. You know what grace means? Unmerited favor. You cannot earn favor with God by anything you do, no matter how righteous or how pious. And remember, after the first covenant was broken by Adam... Remember, God doesn't kill them right away. He allows them to live. Then he proclaims the gospel. And the emphasis in the gospel, and the emphasis in what he says, is, I. I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between the serpent's offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent shall bruise his heel. Then after God delivers Adam and Eve their temporal covenant curses, which would include the inevitability of bodily death, He would make, or in strict Hebrew translation, he would cut a new covenant." Ironically, it is "cut a covenant, because to make this new covenant official, he cuts an animal and makes Adam and Eve garments of skins and clothes them. So now there had to be death. In this new covenant. Yes, Adam and Eve were to die, yet there had to be the shedding of blood to ratify this new covenant. As the author of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They were clothed with the skins of an animal to symbolize the grace, the unmerited favor of God in this new covenant. And notice in this second covenant, God fulfills the conditions. It wasn't do this and live. But God will take the initiative. Why? Well, Adam is no longer able to fulfill the conditions of perfect obedience. And since Adam becomes our representative, the representative of all man, and we inherit His fallen nature, now no one in their sinful state is able to fulfill the condition of perfect obedience. Now by nature, we are all covenant breakers. We are all law breakers. As Paul was trying to explain in Romans 1, 2, and 3, that all are under the judgment of God whether or not you embrace LGBTQ philosophy, or if you're a conservative moralist, we are all under the judgment of God. He says, no one is righteous, no, not one. All stand condemned. But the truth is, perfect obedience will still be required in this new covenant. Why? Well, because God does not change. He does not change. So if we've established that no one can obey perfectly, then who will? Someone has to. We see this so beautifully in the story of Abram or Abraham in Genesis 15. This is known as the Mount Golgotha of the Old Testament. When God made a covenant with Abram, he promised him land and to give him a child, which would lead to Abraham having as many offspring as there are stars in the sky, And out of that number will come the Messiah. Uh, The beautiful thing about this covenant is that God makes it and God keeps it. I'm not saying he didn't keep the covenant with Adam. But in the covenant with Adam, he required Adam to fulfill the conditions of perfect obedience. Granting life based on his obedience. But here... God is the one who keeps the conditions. Abram would ask, How am I to know that you will keep this promise? So after Abram falls into a supernatural slumber and the darkness of judgment fell on him, God would walk through the pieces of sacrifices that were laid over against each other in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. That is what we call a theophany. It is a revelation of God's glory in the form of fire and smoke. He walked through the slaughtered pieces of sacrifices, symbolizing that he is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. As a way of saying to Abram, I will go before you, and I will keep my promise to you, Abram. You're probably wondering, well, what were Abram's conditions? I wouldn't call it conditions. More of requirements. What was required of Abram? It says he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. We know Abram wasn't the most righteous man in the Bible, he made a lot of mistakes. He was a liar, an adulterer, and he was fallen. Yet he believed and was justified. Listen to how our confession states it again. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, that is the covenant of works with Adam, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. And listen to this, requiring of them faith in him. As he becomes now our representative and the second Adam who fulfills the covenant of works on our behalf. Perfect obedience is still required, and it is only fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He fulfills the conditions. He does what Adam failed to do. You're probably asking, well, what about our obedience? Are we still required to obey? Of course we are. We're called to obey. But our obedience and our good works are always to be viewed as fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Like fruits on a vine. But the vine is Christ. Without Christ, the fruits will always be bad. Without the true vine, the good vine, the good tree, who is Christ, we will always be bad trees with bad fruit, even if they look good. Even if they seem good to the rest of society. So our obedience and good works are fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith to prove we are in the covenant of grace. It is to prove that we are true believers. But obedience and good works can never save us. They can never save us. Our obedience never meets the conditions because they are always imperfect in this life. Our obedience is out of gratitude for what God has done for us. While unbelievers, who are still in Adam, are in a sense still under the covenant of works. And since they can't do it, won't do it, and don't do it, they will be judged. So what Jesus was saying on that faithful evening, that he was the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God who will give himself up once and for all as the final and ultimate sacrifice to seal the deal and take on all of the covenant curses that we deserve. He will meet the conditions perfectly on our behalf. And the only way we meet the conditions, the only requirement of this new covenant is that we place our faith in Him who lived and died in our place. This time, instead of an animal, it was God's Son in the flesh who would be cut and made as a covering for us. His blood would be the surety. His blood would be the security of the new covenant that God will meet the conditions and will keep the covenant. His promise will be fulfilled because His blood Was shed. He will walk through the valley of the shadow of death for us. As a way of saying, I will go before you and I will keep my promises to you. So this means that in the Lord's Supper, Christ is the focus. He is our Passover lamb. So we look to Him for salvation, not to ourselves. God has proven time and time again that He keeps His promises and that He can be trusted. And he has promised to save his people. In the Lord's Supper, Christ made a pledge to us, an unfailing pledge. This pledge says to us, I am going to bring you safely home. Now this covenant of grace was administered in different ways throughout the Old Testament, leading up to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, where it was more fully revealed what or who it was all about. Also, another use of the word for covenant is to choose. And here it shows us that he chose a group of messed up disciples, sinners in need of grace, to be recipients of the covenant blessings. Just like he chose you and I. And in this text, this reality, the reality of our own weakness and our own failures, hits us right in the face. Because listen to what happens next. Listen to what he reveals and listen to what he still promises his disciples. They had just finished the Passover meal and when they had sung a hymn, uh, most likely Psalm 116 through 118, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And before Jesus was to become the sacrifice offered to God on our behalf, he foretells again what was about to happen to him. But notice what he says will happen first. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. His divine nature appears again with his full knowledge of future events. He knew that they will eventually abandon him that night. Then he quotes from Zechariah 13, verse 7. And in this quote, he is acknowledging that there are no surprises for him, for he knows the scriptures. He knows God his Father, he knows himself, and he knows his people. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. First, he knows the scriptures. He goes back to the scriptures to explain what was about to occur. Folks, this ought to be our mindset in our pilgrim walk as we go through suffering and despair we are to go back to the scriptures and remind ourselves of God's promises to us. Secondly, he knew God his Father. Jesus has committed and entrusted himself to his Father and to his plan, even though it was dark and grim. He was heading to the cross, and it says, I will strike the shepherd. Who is the I in Zechariah 13, 7? Well, it is God himself. He knew that going to the cross was necessary according to his father's plan of salvation. But he also knew that the cross was not going to be the last say. There was life of glory beyond the grave. Beloved, we know of God's promises in the Bible. We are his people. We are the ones who have God's promises in the Bible right in front of us. This ought to be our response as we know God's plan and that He has won the victory for us. And all of His purposes will work out in our lives. Thirdly, He knew Himself. He acknowledged Himself as the shepherd in this text. He is the shepherd of His sheep. And as the shepherd, He will never fail His sheep. Now the question is, Since he knows himself as the shepherd, do we know ourselves as his sheep? Well, in case you don't, he does. Because fourthly, the shepherd knows his people. It says God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He told them, you will all fall away. See, he knows the failures of his people. He knows your failures. There is no point in hiding them from God. When we sin against God by nature, we tend to harden ourselves and try to hide from God. We are much like Adam and Eve. That when we sin, we try to hide and come up with our own solutions. Like sewing fig leaves together and use them to hide our nakedness. Too bad a couple of fig leaves doesn't hide much from God. Because God already knows your failures before you commit them. He is not surprised by them. He knows all of your sins. And he can see through our sin when we become overly self-confident. Jesus knows our failures and our weaknesses even when we don't acknowledge them. Consider his disciples. Peter and the disciples only see the darkness of what was about to happen. But Jesus knew that there was light at the end of this dark tunnel that leads to his death. But this lack of trust describes the worldliness and the weakness of his disciples in all sinners saved by grace at some point or another. Listen to how Peter and the disciples try to fulfill their own covenant promises. They try to make their own covenant. And they are some bold promises. Now, this is exactly why God must make a covenant with us and not the other way around. Because we would never be able to fulfill our own terms. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Very bold, Peter. Instead of saying, help me, Lord, and preserve me, that I may not fall away, he relied on his own strength. How many of us have made promises to Jesus that we couldn't keep? Or we'd say to ourselves, I would never do that. That's the danger of saying, I would never. Soon after that, God puts you to the test, doesn't he? And so he will with his disciples. Notice how these claims are self-centered. It is about self-reliance. Peter was exalting himself over the other disciples. He thought too highly of himself and his own strength. He was making himself to be better than the rest. I am more faithful than they are. I love Jesus more than anyone else. Have we ever thought this way before? Have we ever thought? I don't think the rest of the church is as zealous as I am. Look at all that I do. While everyone else just wants to hear preaching, what good is that going to do? When persecution comes... I'll think I'll be the only one standing there while everyone else will follow That is the danger of self-reliance. It is a zeal without knowledge, neither of God nor of self. But Jesus knew Peter. He knew he was frail. He knew he was a weak sinner in need of grace. He knew his disciples and that they were all the same. So Jesus said to Peter, you who has the most confidence will be the one who will abandon me the most. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He won't just abandon Jesus, but he will have the chance to confess him three times. But instead, he will deny him three times. Later that night, his self confidence will come out again when they try to arrest Jesus. He'll be so confident and strong that he pulls out a sword and cuts off Malchus's ear instead of his head. He had poor aim for one who was so sure of himself. Listen to his prideful self confidence again. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. He sounds like a hero. He had such great resolve. And not only him, it says, but all of the disciples were saying the same thing. They were acting as if they were the covenant makers and covenant keepers. Because they were lacking in their knowledge of the scriptures. They were lacking in their knowledge of their God. They were lacking in their knowledge of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And they were lacking in their knowledge of themselves. They need to know, and we need to know, that God is the main character in this story, not them. And this God saves his people, and he keeps his people. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now many have tried to explain away the weaknesses of the disciples by saying, it is because they have not received the Spirit at Pentecost yet. Beloved, the book of Acts and what happened at Pentecost is not just about the disciples receiving the Spirit so they can live victorious Christian lives. What happens at Pentecost and throughout the book of Acts is about God, first and foremost. And it is about God giving His disciples the Spirit in a different way so that they can spread the Gospel to all nations. It is about God establishing His kingdom through weak disciples, establishing his kingdom as he has promised in his covenant of grace. Abraham's covenant is fulfilled in the book of Acts. But they remain frail and faulty human beings. For example, there will be infighting and division and separation. You think of Paul and Barnabas. And much later, Paul confronts Peter on his hypocrisy. Poor Peter, we always pick up Peter. But he's such an easy target, isn't he? And just in case you think it wasn't that bad, Paul says he stood condemned. So he knows our failures. Our problem is that we don't want to confess our failures and our weaknesses. Just like his disciples. It is rooted in pride. We don't examine ourselves and we become self-reliant and say very piously, Oh, it's all because I love Jesus. This is the danger of picking up and reading our Bibles and viewing our Bibles as a book of people who lived exemplary and faithful lives. Now, there is nothing wrong with looking to our heroes and following their example. We are called to do so in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But it is as long as they are examples of faith. But faith in who? Christ. Christ is still the focus. But we should also acknowledge that they were fallen. When we pick up our Bibles, we should ask, not so much what are His followers doing, but what is God doing for them, through them, and in them? Because having faith means nothing without the object of faith. So the focus here is not on the disciples and their failures. But it is about God who fulfills his covenant promises. Because the amazing thing in this text is that Jesus shows that he doesn't love them any less. He doesn't love us any less. We often fail to see God's grace throughout the disciples' lives. We fail to see God's grace throughout our own lives. After He says, You will all fall away, He says, In a way, I will not abandon you. I will still be there for you. He tells them, But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. See that? He didn't say, After you fall away, heh, no hope for you. You're done. You're cut off. No, He promised. I will go before you. Now if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that phrasing should raise alarm in your mind to say, well, I heard this before. I heard this before. Well, it's just as God promised Israel before He brought them into the promised land. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 1, He said, I will go before you and I will fight for you just as I fought for you In Egypt, he said, I will go before you to Galilee. Despite the fact that you all fall away. See, he is a covenant making and covenant keeping God. You will fall away, but I will go before you. See, Jesus is known as our forerunner. Who went before us to fulfill or ratify the covenant by dying for us. And he was the first to be raised for us. To ratify means to make official or to seal the covenant. In the Lord's Supper, he was telling his disciples, This is a pledge that I have made to you, and it is unfailing. Through this covenant, I will give my life so that I will give you eternal life and no one will snatch you out of my hand. He will be stricken and give his life to take away the penalty That we deserve for our failures. For in Christ. There is now no more condemnation. And out of this judgment on the shepherd. Will emerge God's people. And God's people will be preserved. Just like in Zechariah 13. That he quoted. Because later in that text it says. They. That is the ones who scattered. The ones who all fell away. Will call upon my name. And I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And it will be all God's doing, not man. Not man. What he was telling his disciples was that it was not about their commitment or your commitment to him, but it was about his commitment to them, his commitment to us. It is not about our promises to him, but about his promises to us. See, the Christian life is not always victorious or glamorous, but it is a series of new beginnings. Each week we gather to renew our covenant with God and be reminded that he has kept his covenant and be reminded of his grace. Imagine if our salvation was based on what we have done. If we were them in their situation, we would all flee. They left the table where they shared in the last supper and sweet communion where God's promises were given to them. And that same night, they would all be scattered and forget his covenant. And they forget their own false promises that they made to him earlier that night as well. Yet Jesus kept his promises. He will go to the cross. He will die. But on the third day, The darkness of this world and death will be resolved when he is raised. Later, after Jesus is raised, he will indeed meet his disciples in Galilee as he promised to eat with them. And he will ask Peter, after three denials, he will ask him three times. Not to shame him, not to just remind him of his failures and faults, but to remind him of his promises that he has indeed been restored. Remember, he went ahead of him with a promise of restoration. So he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now the first time he asks this, he asks, do you love me more than these? Remember what you said before, Peter? Even if they all fall away, I will not. Well, do you love me more than these? The first two times Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But the third time, he was grieved that he had to ask again. Maybe because he was so confident before, now Jesus had to humble him. And in his humility, Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know me inside out. You see right through me. You know my failures. You know my weaknesses. It's no use to try to hide or try to fool God. This is why we're called to confess our sins confess your weak love and rely upon his unending grace to increase your love and boldly confess him before men because Peter with all his weaknesses still confesses you know that I love you so he gives Peter the task feed my sheep feed my sheep the good news that the shepherd was stricken for them beloved this is the good news I have for you It is the promises of the covenant of grace which He has fulfilled and has kept for you. Amen.